0: Uh, I mean, y'all saw everybody that's here with me. So if y'all want to mess with me after the service, you can't. You know, I'm, ro- I'm rolling deep today. Um, and so I'm just thankful for my family to be here. I'm thankful for neighbors to be here and friends as well. Um, and I'm thankful for you guys, ARC. Thank you for allowing me to have the privilege to preach yet again. Uh, so family, I'm going to pray for us once more. And then I'm going to ask the Lord to help us this morning, if that's okay. Uh, Father, uh, I pray that your glory... Uh, will be the aim of of this service Lord God, for your glory alone. And So Lord, I pray by your spirit that you speak truth um, through your word and that you would sanctify us by your word, Lord God. Decline our ears and our hearts uh, to hear from you. I pray that we would set our hearts, uh, that we set our minds, uh, and to be ready to, to hear and worship you. And so Lord, I pray that you will allow me to decrease so that you may increase in this place. And Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There are 2.3 billion active Instagram users in the world today. This means that almost half of the world's population owns an Instagram account. Instagram was founded by uh, two, two guys, Kevin uh, and Mike and Instagram's original intent was to to connect individuals around the world by making check-ins at travel destinations publicized. Hence the word Instagram, the combination of instant camera and telegram. Eventually the the founders felt this idea was way too similar uh, to another app, so they rebranded, thus introducing Instagram as an app that is used to communicate through images. On October 6, 2010, Instagram officially launched and gained a total of one million followers in just three months, solidifying it as the fastest growing social media app that we've ever seen. And fast forward today, Instagram has become a crucial part of our everyday lives. For most of us, Instagram is where we get our news, uh, our spiritual encouragement, sports highlights, parenting tips, and so much more. And these are all great things. I mean, my wife, if you can see my DMs, she sends me a lot of reels, like 50 of them a day. Uh, But for some of us, Instagram has become a place for us to build our very own influencer platform. If we're being completely honest, Instagram has become a platform for us to showcase ourselves. The truth is that we want those who are following us on Instagram to marvel at our lives and not every part of our lives, right? Just the sophisticated kind of aesthetically pleasing part that we could put a filter on. I mean, I'm guilty of this, right? I, I know I'm not alone in this. Brothers and sisters, I'm fully convinced that a key reason that almost half of the planet is on Instagram is because we have this intrinsic desire to want people to follow us and we also crave the praise from those that follow us. I'm also inclined to believe that the way that we think about Instagram has negatively affected the way that we think about discipleship, hasn't it? We want more followers for ourselves than we want followers of Christ. We want those that we're discipling to see more of us instead of of them seeing more of Christ. We want those that we're discipling to praise us more than they're praising the name of Christ. So brothers and sisters, here is... My overarching point for our time this morning. True discipleship must be rooted in Christ and bathed in prayer. True discipleship must be rooted in Christ and bathed in prayer. And as we think about this point, here are some questions that I want you all to consider. Have you been obedient to the Great Commission? Great Commission making disciples of all nations. Have you been obedient to that? Has Christ's command to make disciples become just an option for you? Are you you more concerned with gaining a following online rather than helping someone become a better follower of Christ in real life? How often do you even think about disciple making? Is there a part of you that believes that discipleship is only reserved for those who are in full-time ministry? I think these are some great questions to, to ask ourselves when we think about the topic of discipleship. And to help us think a little bit more about this, we're going to take a look at uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Please turn there with me. And if you're new to reading the Bible, uh, the book of Ephesians is in the New Testament. Uh, it's towards the back of your Bibles, right after the book of Galatians and right before the book of Philippians. So I'll give you some time to flip there. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21. But before we get into our text for this morning, uh, let me provide us with some brief context. The letter of the Ephesian church uh, was aimed at both Jew and Gentile believers, written by Paul yet again while he was in prison. It was sent to remind them that they are now one in Christ, their family, and the way that they were to display this familial bond was to, to, by how they loved one another. This letter also emphasizes the theme of a redemption and God's grace in a life of believers. In a similar fashion to some of Paul's other letters, uh, the first three chapters of this letter are about doctrine, right? what we know about God. And the last three chapters are about how to apply this doctrine. Paul starts off chapter one by telling us, in him we have redemption through his blood. It then goes on to pray for uh, the Ephesian church. He goes then from there and tells us in chapter 2 that we were dead in our trespasses to sins. And it's only by grace uh, that, that we are saved through faith in Christ alone. Amen? He also tells us that the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles has been torn down by the work of Christ. In the beginning of chapter 3, he begins talking about the mystery of Christ uh, and how it had been made known to the Gentiles. And now we arrive at this passage where the Apostle Paul pauses to pray once again. He says this, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width, height, and depth of God's love. It's no Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. i could just stop right there and stop preaching. I think Paul preached just enough. But I do have four points for us to, to take a look at as we kind of dive in uh, to this passage. So here you go, four points. True discipleship begins on our knees. Verses 14 through, through 15. True discipleship begins on our knees. Uh, next point, true, true discipleship requires the Spirit's power and Christ's lordship. We see that in verses 16 through 17a. Then we go, true discipleship is wrapped in love. We see that in verses 17b through through verse 19. And then we see uh, true discipleship is fueled by faith. Verses 20 to 21. So point number one, true discipleship begins on our knees. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. So as we've highlighted before, the Apostle Paul does the bulk of his teaching in the first three chapters of this book. and We see here that Paul ends his theology class with prayer. And again, this is the second time praying for them in this book. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. For what reason? Well, we see in chapter two, uh, Paul says this, starting at verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. I believe it was for this reason that Paul knelt before the Father, celebrating the fact that the mystery of Christ have been revealed to the Gentiles. That they are now a part of the body of Christ without partiality. And the phrase kneel before the Father, I think is mostly about having an attitude of reverence, submission, and passion in prayer. Not necessarily mandating the physical posture of being on our knees in prayer. You see, uh, it is possible for us to be on our knees, and yet our hearts be far from him. Being on our knees could could just be a way that we pray out of routine and religiosity and prayer must not be done performatively. Being on our knees may be done to assist us with humility in prayer, but it's not a requirement of our prayers. And listen, this isn't to deter anyone from praying on your knees. I think it's a great practice. I do it. Please continue doing it. But I believe what God's word is telling us is that the most important thing in our prayer life is not how we look when we pray, but the position of our hearts as we pray. Are we arrogant in our prayer life? Are we demanding of God in our prayer life? Are we entitled when we pray? On the other hand, do we believe that God will even answer our prayers? You see, Paul continues and saying, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, verse fifteen. From every family in heaven and on earth is named. This phrase, "from every family in heaven and on earth," this name is returning to what Paul taught about uh, in Ephesians two, verses eighteen through nineteen, what we just read. This phrase is meant to let us know that if you are in Christ, each and every one of us has access to God. Every believer from every moment of history belongs to God. A R C. We belong and have access to the living God. Praise God for this miracle that was accomplished only by the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross. Praise God that we are no longer strangers to God but now we know him as father. Brothers and sisters, it's obvious that from the start of this passage Paul knew that he had to pray for those that he was discipling. After he was done teaching them about God, Paul knows that Theology without a devotion to prayer is futile. Paul was not oblivious to the fact that prayer is the way that we digest what we learn about God. Theology without prayer is a recipe for arrogance. Arrogance that is produced in you and in those that you disciple as well. I also think Paul realized that in spite of all that he's taught the Ephesian church in these first three chapters, He won't get the results that he's hoping to see in them without prayer. So you ask God uh, for help. You know, the Apostle Paul, I mean, you guys know, he was fully equipped with all the knowledge, uh, ministerial experience and strategy that you can ever think of when it comes to discipling. And yet he recognized prayer was his greatest tool. One theologian says this about prayer. Prayer is weakness leaning on omnipotence. I mean, I just think about Micah and Brittany and I. You know, Micah literally can't do anything without Brittany. She needs to feed, even to sleep. You know what I'm saying? She has to put her hand on her uh, and all of that. And she cries when she doesn't have the food that she needs. Right? How much more should we be crying out to the God of the universe, thirsting and hungering for him in prayer? We should be we should be ready to call out to him when we're ready to pray. May we be like Micah, eagerly waiting and hungering and thirsting for the Lord God in prayer. So, A.R.C., are we praying for those that we disciple earnestly? Or are we over strategizing and being overly pragmatic when it comes to our discipleship? Is your first option to rely on yourself or is it to rely on the omnipotent God? Discipleship starts with a sense of desperation for God to move. I say renew this too. Check out John 17 on your own time. Christ himself leaned on his father when it came to discipleship. So how much more should we? I think one last thing that Paul recognized is that his disciples did not belong to him. Paul made sure to acknowledge that they belong to the living God. Brothers and sisters, I think one of the most subtle and harmful things about discipleship is when we believe that those that we are discipling belong to us. And I think you can start to tell when this happens because we have this sort of possessive attitude, right, labeling this person as ours. Right, that's my disciple. We also get defensive and territorial when someone else begins to pour into them. Right, you start to feel that in your heart. That's your problem, that's a heart check, not the other person. And then I think we often forget that those that we are discipling are made in God's image. Not Alex's image, not anyone else's, only his. Therefore, they belong to him and him alone. Y'all, discipleship in essence means to help someone to become a better follower of Christ. And we accomplish this by being devoted as a better advocate in prayer. But what should we pray for when it comes to our discipleship? Well, we see here in point number two, a true discipleship requires the the spirit's power in Christ's lordship. Paul says this, I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power and your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Y'all notice Paul's prayers are almost always consistently for the spiritual well-being of others. It is here that the Apostle Paul begins his prayer for the Ephesian church. He first asks the Father to grant them power according to who he is and then asks for Christ to take his rightful place in their hearts. Through Paul, the word of God provides a wonderful template for us to use as the substance of our prayers for those that we disciple. There's nothing better than praying God's word back to him. When praying uh, for those that you are discipling, the, the, God's word provides security in knowing that our prayers are in accordance with him. If you need to think about what you need to pray for your disciples, pray God's word. Also in prayer, so also in Paul's prayer, you'll see Paul uh, provides what many call a, a Trinitarian outline of prayer. Right. This, you know, in verse 16, he asked for the Holy Spirit's help. And then he asked for Christ's help in verse 17. And then later in verse 19, he asked for them to be filled with the fullness of God. It appears that Paul knew that discipleship required the help of the entire Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit. I believe he wanted those that he was leading to understand the importance of the Trinity. And how each person of the Trinity is equal in value, yet different in function. I think he did this so that they would understand the magnitude of the God that they serve. And I believe it should be the same with those that we disciple. Brothers and sisters, don't shortchange those that you disciple by neglecting to shine light on all three persons of the Trinity. You may be keeping them from seeing the fullness of God as you do that. The knowledge of God, theology, right? The knowledge of God is the knowledge of the Trinity. One theologian says this, the father plans salvation, the son accomplishes salvation, and the spirit applies salvation. That's good. I mean, y'all sitting here real stoic. That's real good. I'm a priest by myself. Here we go. So Paul begins his prayer by saying, I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory. Brothers and sisters, I believe that Paul starts off his prayer this way to serve as a reminder to us about who the source of the things Uh, who is the source of the things that he's asking to be given to the Ephesian church? He says, according to the riches of his glory. What does he mean by this term glory? Well, I I don't think anyone can fully grasp uh, what this word means in its entirety, not even your most esteemed theologian. And I think that's on purpose. I think God uses this word to show how finite we are and just how infinite he is. But if I were to try to, to define it, I've heard it said this way God's glory is the manifestation of who He is. One theologian says that that God's glory possesses three key components His immensity, right? The weight of God, right? Kind of gravitas, His holiness, the set apartness of God, and His fearsomeness, the reverence of God. Paul also mentions God's riches to, to remind us that no amount of money, success, Or generational wealth can mount up to the abundance of wealth that our God possesses. Brothers and sisters, all of what those we disciple need can be found in him. If we have knowledge, God has infinitely more. If we have wisdom, God has infinitely more. If we have resources, God has infinitely more. The only thing that we have that God doesn't have an endless supply of is sin itself. I think about um, the beach and kids going to the beach, and sometimes they bring uh, this sand, little sand bucket, and they bring the little scooper. And so when they're done playing in the sand, I I, I sometimes notice them going to the water and kind of scooping the water with that same sand bucket. And, And for me, as I think about it, I think that's the same way that we ought to think about the riches that God has for us. It's an everlasting riches. As they scoop that water, nothing really changed. It's an endless supply of water. And as we go to God, there's an endless supply of riches for us to take advantage of. So go to him. The apostle Paul then continues in prayer, asking that they would be strengthened with power in their inner being through his spirit. I think Paul recognizes the strength of the Ephesians need can only come from the Holy Spirit who moves internally and not from any sort of behavioral or circumstantial modification shown externally. It has been said, inner being here is meant to contrast the outer man that is wasting away and to emphasize the inner man that is being renewed daily. Y'all, as we pray, we ought to be praying for the Spirit to do the sanctifying work that only he can do, that gives power to those that we disciple. So y'all, here. just a few key reasons as to why we need to pray for the Spirit's power in the lives of those that we disciple. Number one, holiness. Y'all, we, I mean, we are up against a lot, and those that we disciple are up against a lot. We got the world who is throwing all kinds of things at them, telling them to not love God and to love sin. We got our flesh that is talking to us all the time, wanting us to, to sin at each and every moment. Then we have the enemy who is crafty, right, prowling around like a lion, seeking who he may devour. And so we ought to pray for the Spirit's power, for the the holiness of those that we pour into. Next, obedience. Y'all, we need the Spirit's power to be obedient to God's word. We need that. We need the Spirit's power to be obedient to the Spirit, right? Next, endurance. Y'all, there's there's nothing, uh, yeah, there's nothing that I see uh, that takes kind of believers away from the faith than suffering in some kind of way uh, without the Spirit's power. We need endurance, and that can only be accessed by the Spirit uh, and the power of the Holy Spirit. I think we also have dry seasons that we need the Spirit's power to kind of move through. As a Christian, you're not going to always feel like reading your Bible or praying or go to church. But the the Spirit's power, it helps us to get up in the morning. Say, you know what? I'm going to put on my shoes. I'm going to put on my church clothes and I'm going to show up. That is only done by the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that the Holy Spirit has become this kind of buzzword in our circles. I don't think we get excited about the Holy Spirit, but he is a person of the Trinity. He is the God of the universe, right? And so I, I think we need to do a better job at healthily looking at the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Verse 17, Paul continues to pray that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. The word dwell translated in the Greek means to make yourself at home. One theologian says this, a result of the spirit working in our inner being is that it makes way for Christ to take his rightful place in our hearts. Yes, it is true that that we do experience a, a, a heart change the moment that we become believers in Jesus. By the spirit's power, our heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh, but we need the continual dwelling of Christ in our hearts because of the things that compete for our hearts on a daily basis. And if this, is, uh, if this is true of us, how much more of those, uh, how much, how more so true is it of those that we disciple? And that is why we need to be bathed in prayer. So ARC, what is captivating the hearts of those that you're discipling? Is it money? Is it academics? Fame or ambition? What is taking Christ's place as Lord in their, in their hearts. Christ must be the only one ruling the hearts of those that we disciple and ours as well. Christ should have a permanent residence in our hearts. So true discipleship begins on our knees. True discipleship requires the Spirit's power in Christ's Lordship. And point number three, true discipleship is wrapped in love. I pray that you Being rooted and firmly established in love may be be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, the width, the height, and the depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Brothers and sisters, love is the response when we allow Christ to dwell in our hearts. Paul continues in his prayer and prays that as the Ephesians are cemented in love, They would be able to better understand the love of God and that they would be so well acquainted with his love that they would have no choice but to be filled with the fullness of God. This phrase being rooted and established in love is nothing new coming from Paul. One of the most well-known passages written by Paul, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 1 through 3, shows us just how important love is in the life of his own ministry and in the lives of those that he's discipling. Turn with me, he says this. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, he says, If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if, If I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. I think Alexander uh, Strauch does a phenomenal job at helping us to better understand this passage in his book titled, Leading with Love. He says this, picturing himself as the most extraordinary teacher or leader to ever live, Paul would say this, if I were the most gifted communicator to ever preach so that millions of people were moved by my uh, my oratory skills but didn't have love, I would be an annoying, empty windbag before God and people. If I had the most charismatic personality so that everyone was drawn to me like a powerful magnet but didn't have Christ-like love, I would be a phony. If I were the greatest visionary leader that the church has ever heard but did not have love, I would be misguided and lost. If I were the best-selling author on theology and church growth but didn't have love, I would be an empty-headed failure. If I sacrificially gave all my waking hours to discipling future leaders, but did it without love, i would be a false guide and model. Listen, the greatest attribute that those that you are discipling can possess is not intellect, it's not creativity, it's not charisma, it's love. And this love starts with us, right church? I'm sure that you've heard that that discipleship is more caught than taught. And if this is true, this means that, th- that that as those that we are discipling see you loving others, it should spur them to do the same. And I I by no means, uh, I'm not perfect when it comes to this, but by God's grace, I've been able to see the imprint of love in those that I've had the privilege to disciple over the years. And I've seen how much uh, my own love has grown by their example. So I think about people like Tyrell. Tyrell faithfully served in the church, he loves his wife, he loves his kid, and he loves the body of Christ. I think about uh, people like Karaji. That's not what us no more, but we still love him. Uh, who loves his wife, who loves the church, and he loves God's people. Think about Josh, uh, a guy that I had the privilege to disciple. He's in Phoenix, but I seen the way that he loves the students at HU. I think about our very own Josiah and how much he loved God's word and God's people and he loves the Great Commission. So A.R.C., what are we known for? Is it our love? And secondly, what are those that we are discipling known for? Is it the same? Paul continues in his prayer in verse 18 by praying that the Ephesian church may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. You may be able to comprehend with all the saints, what is the length, and the width, and the height, and depth of God's love. Brothers and sisters, I think the irony of this phrase is that the love of God is truly unmeasurable. And any attempt to measure it shows just how vast his love is. And just as God's love is immeasurable, Christ's love is unknowable by showing us just how lofty his love is. And I think these two examples of love should bring us uh, bring those that we are discipling a great deal of comfort. They should constantly be reminded that the God of the universe loves them more than you or I can ever could ever think of or could ever strive to, because God is love. But just a quick quick note on the God is love piece I think. Uh, y'all, we've kind of uh, allowed, one, the world to kind of use this as a cheap cliche, right? Just kind of God is love, and that's, you know, they don't really even know what they're talking about. And I think we've let the world hijack it to a point that we've, all, we've almost made it irrelevant to speak about in church. I think we've gone to the point of saying, man, it's been hijacked so much, I don't think we should talk about it that much. But I think, y'all, we're, we're, we're Christians. Like, that is the foundation of our faith. God is love. It's not some elementary thing that people just say. I mean, that is the foundation and the crux of our faith. I mean, I think we love to say God's, in these circles, we love to say God's holy and just, etc. But what about love? That is fundamental to who he is. 1 John 3.16. He says this, this is how we come to know love. He laid down his life for us should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Romans 5.8, but God proves his own love for us, that even while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. John 13.34 to 35, I give you a new command. Love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another by this, by this, by this, everyone would know that you are my disciples if you love one another. ARC, how have we been doing with our love for each other? These verses do a great job at highlighting just how much God loves us and just how much he loves those that we're discipling. And if you're not not yet a Christian, I think there's one more key verse that highlights God's love. And I think this is one that you may have even memorized as a child, but I'm going to say it anyway. John 3.16, for God So, loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For those of you who do not follow Jesus, God loved you and I so much that he saw fit to send his only Son to us Jesus. 100% man, 100% God, born in the main. Raised in the slums of Nazareth, and yet lived a perfect and sinless life, unlike us. And he loved us so much that he died a death designed for sinners just like us. And after that, he was buried and rose again, defeating sin and death, and now reigns at the right hand of the Father. And out of the abundance of his love, he offers you forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel message. This is the message that saves. He loves you just that much. I mean he loves you so much that he made sure you were here today. Believe on him this morning I promise you, you will never experience another love like this. It's lasting, it doesn't fizzle out. It's secure. It's not built on sand. It's not it's not, it's not phony fixated. It's not fickle. It's there for you to take advantage of So take advantage of the love of Christ while you still have time to Tomorrow is not promised. But the gospel is promised. Brothers and sisters, experiencing a love like this should cause us to have complete devotion to God. I think that's what Paul meant in praying for the church to be still with the fortitude. His love should prompt us and those that we disciple to be more like him. So this brings me to my last point. True discipleship is fueled by faith. Now to him, who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is work, that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, y'all, I think Paul got a little excited here at the end of his prayer. I think this is a little prayer break. Paul starts his prayer with, with reverence to the Father and ends the very same way. He reminds us yet again that it's only God that is able to do all of the things that he's praying for in the lives of the Ephesians. And to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I think this, this doxology is often looked at as the climax of the entire letter. It is here where the Apostle Paul is showing an undeniable faith in the living God, believing that he's able to do more than he could ever conceptualize. Family, do we have this kind of faith today? And not just faith for ourselves, but faith in those or for those that we're discipling. Are we truly convinced that God can actually do the things that we've been praying for for so long? And if the answer is no, I challenge you this morning to end your prayers like this during the times of the scripture. Parents, when when parenting gets tough and things look impossible with your children and you've been praying for them for so long, now unto him. Sisters, when mental health is paralyzing uh, another sister that you know and that you've been praying for, now unto him. Brothers, when the brother that you've been walking with is weighed down by sin, now unto him family, when things on our blocks are only getting worse and not getting better, now unto him. Now unto him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be the glory and church in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. ARC, may we demonstrate a faith like this when it comes to our discipleship. True discipleship is rooted and Christ, and bathe in prayer. You're not currently being discipled and discipling someone. Make this a priority. These literally, these were the last words that Christ charged his own disciples with. We ought to take them seriously. And may our disciples be wrapped in love, Holy Spirit, and power, under the authority of Christ. And may it begin and end with us on our knees. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word convicts. We thank you that your word instructs. And we thank you that you are a God of love. Lord, help us to apply your word to our lives. May it not just go in one ear and not, and not the other. Lord, get me out of the way. And make your word be, have the spotlight. In God. Speak through your word and through the power of your spirit. But we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.